Well, it was St. Francis who is credited in the 12th century with building the first Christmas nativity set. And apparently it was uh, life-size statues of the crib and uh, of the, uh, they brought live animals in and it was used as a visual aid to communicate the good news of Christmas. It was also St. Francis who was the first to put the Christmas story into contemporary tunes so that people could sing this wonderful story. Again, teaching aids, communicating to everyone the gospel. You see, up until the Reformation, in church, the services were all in Latin. And many people simply didn't understand what was being said. Not only that, but the songs were sung in Latin, formerly by the priests and perhaps a few in the choir. So people didn't get to sing this wonderful song of Christmas. And it was St. Francis who took the everyday tunes that were sung in the pubs, in the inns, the songs that people loved to sing and loved to dance to, and he put the greatest story to those melodies. After the Reformation, we began to sing songs in the vernacular. And it was from the 17th, it was from the 18th century onwards, the 1700s onwards, that we began to start singing Christmas carols. However, the very first Christmas carols are here in Scripture. The first two Christmas carols actually happened and were sung before the Lord Jesus was even born. And they were sung by Mary and they were sung by Zechariah. Mary, as we've just heard, after the angel Gabriel tells her that she will give birth to the Son of God, sings this song, sings this carol. It's the Magnificat, that's the name given to it. My soul magnifies the Lord. And when we understand who God is and what God has done and what God offers, our soul expands and we can't help but sing and respond. And then later, Zechariah, at the birth of his son, John the Baptist, he also sings and his son, John the Baptist will prepare the way for the Lord. And Zechariah sings the second Christmas carol called the Benedictus. Blessed be the God of Israel. He can't help but thank God who has spoken and who has acted and who has shown up and who's come to save them. Besides being the first two Christmas carols, the Magnificat, and the Benedictus, both of them interestingly share the same theme. And both of them twice mention mercy. Mary's carol, Luke 150 says, God's mercy reaches out to those who fear him. Verse 54, God has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful. And then in Zechariah's carol, verse 72, God has shown mercy to our fathers. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. That word there, Elios, means pity, means compassion, means clemency, means pardon, it means 
mercy. It's actually a rare word in the New Testament. It only occurs six times in Luke's gospel, but five of them are here in these Christmas carols in the nativity. And I want to encourage us this Christmas time, this Advent season, to be thinking of Christmas as the intervention and the action and the movement of God towards us in his mercy. Mercy is the story of Christmas. It's a pity, I think, that the only modern carol that I could think of that actually mentions mercy is that epic, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which has that lovely line, peace on earth and mercy mild. Although actually, when I think about it, mercy mild seems a little bit kind of pale, a little bit anemic, and God's mercy is nothing like that. There is great substance to his mercy. And we need to make more of his mercy. And this Christmas, we need to receive more of his mercy. And we need to offer and extend to others more of his mercy. So that's where we're going in our brief time together this morning. And I've got two main points with a numerous sub-points. No, just two. <laughs> Firstly, this Christmas, let's celebrate God's mercy. This is something to celebrate. It was a famous Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, was writing on how to meditate on the nature and character of God. What are we to think about? How are we to do it? What is to focus and hold our attention and our thoughts? And Spurgeon said, begin with his mercy. It all begins with his mercy. Christmas begins with God's mercy. And why was it such a prominent theme here for Zechariah and for Mary? Why did they underscore, why did they underline mercy? Well, Christina Rossetti imagined the setting in that cow. She said, earth stood hard like iron, water like a stone, snow on snow on snow. I very much doubt there was any snow at that time. Sorry to ruin your image of Christmas, but almost certainly Jesus was born around September and it doesn't snow in Israel in September. But life was hard as iron. She was right there in that first century agrarian Israel. And they were under the brutal occupation of the Romans. Life was hard. It was hand to mouth. There wasn't a lot of hope. And people were people. They were faced with all the usual existential questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Often they were just having to make do. And then, of course, they were confronted with all the spiritual questions, particularly they as Israel, the people of God. Where is God? Why isn't he answering our prayers? Has God abandoned us? We've got promises in Scripture. We've got prophecies in Scripture. I'm offering up prayers about those things. Where is God? Maybe some of you understand what it is to voice those sort of concerns and feelings. Life was hard, hard as iron. For millennia since our ancestors made a great and terrible fall in Eden, that cry for mercy had gone up. Mercy is calling out to God to help, 
to show up, to speak up, to step in, to intervene, to act, to turn things around. Mercy, God, mercy. And the cry for mercy did not fall on deaf ears. American writer Joseph Campbell wrote this, computers are like Old Testament gods. They have lots of rules and no mercy. I think he knows about as much of, about God as I know about computers. Because actually, if he were to read scripture, he would, say, he would see that the God revealed there is a God who is merciful. In Exodus 33, one of the greatest uh, theophanies, the greatest appearings, revealings, manifestations of God. It, it, God is talking to Moses on Mount Sinai. And Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt and he's led them to this point and he's gone up a mountain and there he is in the very presence of God, communing with God, speaking with him, listening to him and God is giving him instructions and commands and the laws to order the life of the people of Israel for their good. And God says, I'm gonna go with you up into this land full of promise. But Moses wanted more. Moses said, that isn't enough. It's not enough that I'm here with you. It's not enough that you're giving me your instruction. It's not enough that you're accompanying us into the promised land. I want to know you. And he says, show me your glory. Show me your very essence, your blazing, burning, beautiful presence. Show me your glory. Many people would like God to give them glory. Others might say, show me the money, but Moses got it right. Show me your glory. Show me what you're really like. And God says, I'm going to do that. And it says that he will hide him in the cleft of a rock and he would cause all his glory, all his goodness to pass him by. And as he, as he did that, he would speak his name. So he puts Moses in a rock and he comes close to him and his glory goes past him and he speaks his own name. He reveals his very essence. Yahweh, I am who I am. And then God gives a commentary on his own name. God explains who he is. God explains how he is. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. This is the definitive revelation of the nature and character and person of God in the Old Testament. He's not angry, he's not malevolent, he's not vicious, he's not even distant. He's the God who comes near and reveals his name and then tells us what he's like, all his goodness, all his glory, I will have mercy. I will have compassion. That's what God is like. God's glory is his goodness, and his goodness is his mercy and compassion. And why am I underlining that? Because all of God's glory and all of God's goodness, incarnate 
mercy and compassion is there at Christmas. God became flesh and dwelt among us as that fantastic reading said from John 1. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And who is he? And how is he? What is he like? He is the God of mercy and compassion. At Christmas, mercy becomes flesh. At Christmas, God's glory, God's goodness, Yahweh becomes flesh and dwells among us. And mercy reaches out to us from a manger. Mercy stretches out its arms on a cross. And mercy pushes back the great stone that keeps us in death from the tomb. What's Advent all about? What's Christmas all about? What's Jesus all about? About mercy coming close, up close and personal. And there is a wideness to God's mercy. It extends around the world. It extends all the way back to Eden and all the way forward to the return of our Lord Jesus. No one is excluded from the offer of his mercy. Everyone, whoever they are, wherever they've been, whatever they've done, mercy is offered to them. It triumphs over judgment and it forgives and rescues and restores and recreates. I love the little tradition in formal Roman Catholic uh, services when they come to the Eucharist. And as the individual comes to receive and to drink from the chalice three times, they say, my Jesus, mercy. My Jesus, mercy. My Jesus, mercy. That's what he's like. That's who he is. So it's no wonder when Mary having been told the spirit will overshadow her and the child who will be conceived in her will be the eternal son of God, the Logos made flesh who will redeem the world. No wonder she says, mercy's come. We've been waiting forever. We've been waiting since all hell broke loose with Adam and Eve, and here it is. Mercy has come, and he is helping his servant Israel. And it's no wonder Zechariah sings, mercy Tender mercy. And Graham Greene's amazing novel and uh, great black and white movie too called Brighton Rock. Pinky is a gang leader. He's a violent murderer. He's a racketeer. But he becomes obsessed at some point with his own sin, his own sense of evil, his own guilt and his own shame. And he goes to the priest and he says, what will happen if someone like me commits suicide after they've lived a rotten life. What's going to happen? And the priest says, listen to this, this is what the priest says. He says, you cannot conceive my child, nor can I, nor can anyone, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. Who is he? How is he? He is mercy. And at Christmas, we celebrate the mercy of God. That's the first thing. Secondly, this Christmas, we've got to demonstrate the mercy of God. Of the six occasions, as I said, that Luke mentions mercy, five are here in the nativity. Two 
in each of the song, songs, the first carols, and one in between describing God's action is, what the word, is the word that the people use to describe it. The only other time we find in Luke's gospel reference to mercy is in the story of the Good Samaritan. And you'll know the story that a Samaritan comes by a Jewish man who's the victim of brutal robbery and he's been left for dead. No one else has come to his rescue. No one's come to his help. But this alien, this stranger, this person of an, an anathematized people group up in the north, he comes and he sees someone in need and he steps in and offers help. And we're told that he anoints him with oil to soothe his wounds and he takes him to an innkeeper and he gives some money, says, you look after him till he's well and I'll pay and settle his full bill. And then Jesus asks the teachers of the law, he says, who is the one who has loved his neighbor? And the people say, the one who had mercy. The one who had mercy. Mercy is not sentimental, not emotional. It's concrete and tangible and substantial and it is an action for good. You might find it interesting that the word mercy, elios, sounds like the word for oil, elion. Mercy is healing. I think the two go together and uh, they may not share the same semantic root, but they go together. That this healing oil, this oil that just is a balm to the wounds, it sounds like mercy. It is mercy. In Dickens, Christmas Carol, it's often sentimentalized, but actually it's a gritty political statement uh, and a call for social reform. And there's Scrooge, as we know, we know the story well. And he's just a dreadful man. And he lives for himself, and he lives to make money, and he uses his employees like instruments that are there to serve his own financial gain and ends. He doesn't recognize them as people. He lacks basic compassion and doesn't care about their good, let alone their flourishing. And on Christmas Eve, a series of ghosts come. You know the story. And they warn him about the consequence of his actions. And then one ghost comes, Jacob Marley. He's rattling his chains. You remember the scene? He says, I forged this chain link by link and yard by yard and fantastic stuff. And Scrooge says to him, Marley, I remember you. He says, you were good at business. You're good at business. You're good at making money, making profit. And Marley replies with these words, business. He says, mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence, these were all my business. Mercy was my business, or it should have been, and it wasn't. And that's why he was held in limbo. And listen, church, we're to be a community of mercy. If we are the community of the people of God whose characteristic is mercy, then we, that should rub off on us. And we should be a merciful people. And how are we going to show it this Christmas? Who is benefiting from our 
acts of mercy and charity and kindness and benevolence. I love that we're collecting coats for those who are going to be cold this Christmas. I love that we're putting together 120 hampers for poor families. But is it enough? What else can we do? And what, what, are we, what, what am I doing? And what are you doing for the other? The question is not what you get in for Christmas. The question is what you give in this Christmas. You know, our English word mercy actually comes from a Latin word, merks, that means merchandise, from which we got our word merchandise. It means good stuff. Mercy involves stuff, not an emotion, not a feeling, not a sentiment. It's an action that involves stuff. God is merciful. He gives. And if we're to be a community of mercy, we've got to give. And then the second way we must show mercy is in forgiving and releasing others. I don't know about you, but often I want mercy from God for myself, but I want him to show justice and judgment to others. Do you know what I mean? I want mercy. I want him to be just and show his wrath elsewhere. Showing mercy doesn't make light of the wrong and it doesn't negate injustice and it doesn't negate justice and doesn't underline injustice, but it refuses to hold the wrong against someone. And mercy absolves and pardons and, and there can be no resentment. Mercy keeps no record of wrongs. That's what God is like and that's what we're to be like. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, the essential act of mercy is to pardon. And pardon in its very essence involves the recognition of guilt and the ill desert in the recipient. It doesn't make light of the wrong that has been done. It doesn't ignore it, doesn't push it away. But it simply lets mercy come to the fore. Pity and clemency and grace and restoration and healing balm. And so this Christmas, as we prepare for it, I want to ask you to ask yourself the question, has anyone done you any wrong this year or in previous years? And if you're human, we live in a fallen body in a fallen world surrounded by fallen people. Wrong's been done to us and we've done wrong to others. But I want to encourage you this Christmas to show mercy to pardon, to release them, to not hold any resentment. Don't get to Christmas Day without showing mercy to someone that needs it. When I was at theological college training to be a vicar 30 odd years ago, I was with someone called Guli Francis de Carney, who's now the Bishop of Chelmsford. I'd much rather be a curate at St. Aldate's, but she was the sister to Bahram, who was assassinated by Iranian agents in the 1980s. And at the funeral of Bahram, her father, who was an amazing man, uh, and he himself was a bishop, he gave this prayer at the funeral. And this is a prayer for those who'd killed his son that he was burying. He says, oh God, we remember not only Bahram, but his murderers. 
And through their crime, we know your footsteps more closely in the way of sacrifice. This calamity makes obvious as never before our need to trust in God's love as shown in the cross of Jesus. Love that brings patience and forbearance and courage and loyalty, humility, generosity, and greatness of heart. And then he says, oh God, when his murderers stand before you on the day of judgment, remember the fruit of the Spirit by which they have enriched our lives and forgive them. forgive them that's mercy that's extraordinary that is a grace but how could he hold resentment when he knew God was the God who was always willing to show mercy perhaps the band had come up well not perhaps would the band like to come up <laughs> That was not a subjunctive, even though it sounded like one. For several months this year, I got obsessed with an issue. I, I, I have a kind of strange propensity mentally to follow things down rabbit holes and stay there for some time in the darkness. And I followed this issue in my head. And it was to do with justice. And I was aware that someone had done something wrong. It wasn't a safeguarding issue or anything like that. But I, I, I was aware of, of something. And it just began to work away in my spirit. And I wanted justice. And I actually wanted them to be punished. That's what I wanted. I spoke to Tiff about it. And she said, get a life and chill out and pack it in. <laughs> And I spoke to some of my friends and colleagues, and they said, it's all, right, it's all right, just forget it, move on. But I couldn't. And in that kind of strange, neurotic way, I just hung on to it, and it began to eat away at me for months. And then one day, I was driving down to Winchester to pick up my lad from uni to bring him home. And I got there early, and I, I thought, I'll go to the bookshop, and there's a, a lovely bookshop just behind the cathedral. So I walked past the cathedral, and I saw a sign, and, it just, and the sign said there was a communion in the undercroft at 12 o'clock. And I looked at my watch, and it was 11.59. And I thought, I'm a vicar. I don't have to go to communion. I go to communion all the time. And I just sensed the Lord say to me, if you go to communion, I'll speak to you, and it'll help you. I thought, I think I'd rather go and get a bargain at the bookshop. But anyway, I went in as it hit 12. I sat down. There were three other people and a priest I thought, oh, no. And uh, anyway, he led the service, which was the traditional 1662 prayer book service. I've done it so often. I've recited it, led it, and enjoyed it so often. I've memorized much of it. And yet I'd missed much of it. And I hadn't understood something that was there, like a water frank on every page of the service. And it was printed out on a card and covered in cellophane. And I'm reading the service. And the word that kept standing out to me was mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. God is merciful, merciful, merciful. The service is going on. I began counting how many times it said it. 31 times. Mercy and merciful. 
And then we had a one-minute sermon. I know some of you would have liked that here. One minute. <laughs> and it was all about God is merciful. Go out and show his mercy. That was all he said. He said it about four times, and we got on with stuff. Mercy. And God spoke to me, and I came to communion. My Jesus, mercy. My Jesus, mercy. My Jesus, mercy. Tears were running down my eyes. I thought, mercy. And I realized I lived by mercy. And I needed to show mercy. And all of that angst and desire for justice lifted. You know, and with this I finish, Cranmer's most famous prayer of consecration in that service, many of you all know it, summarizes God's action in the world that is focused and concentrated at Christmas. And he says this, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy tender mercy, that's Zechariah's words, who of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, at Christmas, but to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. Tender mercy. God got me. I needed to show mercy. I needed to know mercy. This Christmas, as we rush towards it, and we're busy with stuff and preparations and excitements and all that, let's take a moment to celebrate his mercy. And let's also think practically, how can we demonstrate his mercy? Amen.